Hi, I'm Lewis Johnson of Capital Wealth Advisors. And I'm panicked about deglobalization. That is me. Howard, how are you? We're broke. You didn't know? Uh, no, I'm this not This is the last day I... with that fancy microphone. <laughs> okay. Oh, you lost all your FTX. I'm sorry, man. Yeah, let me let me do not an apology, just like what I've learned. But we can make it an apology because I'm an idiot, uh, but I've, I've hopefully contained my idiocy to just myself. We are in one of the most interesting moments in financial history, and my guest today is Lewis Johnson. He's not famous, but he's a really good pal. I've had him on the podcast. He's been so right. And as I said, when I got back from the summer vacation, I'm, I'm just having friends on the podcast, people that have seen things that interest me, not famous people for the sake of famous people, Canoe. And here's the problem of some of the mistakes that I've made. You know, I've had Lewis on. We talked about, man, I, I think this, this trend is ending in tech. And Lewis came on in 2020 and was talking about value and about like the switch that was happening. And he was right. He, he wasn't like pounding the table what I should do. He was just telling me how he saw the world. Anyways, rates were cut. 2021 was a party. And, um, you know, you could sense the party. Now, I had Sam, I forget what month we had Sam Bankman freed on Canute, but it was sometime June of 2021. And believe me, when I had him on, he was not famous like he is today, right? <laughs> I don't think you had heard of him, Canute. Most people had not heard I of him. I had not. And my excitement over having him on the show was the product and um, just the the growth that uh, as non-FTX user, I just kept hearing the name FTX, FTX. And we had a pretty good conversation, a lot of it over my head and a lot of it me asking him my silly questions about, you know, boxers and briefs and dating, <laughs> and life in Hong Kong. Little did I know that uh, we had a Bernie Madoff, and I say this because I've been around criminals, unfortunately, in my business, or, or sociopaths, and I am now, you know, I was, you know, part of publicizing a person that, that has become one of the worst financial criminals of all time, unless, unless we're mistaken and all the news is wrong. That's possible. So I, I have just, you know, it makes me rethink how I talk to people and what this podcast is about because we had a great conversation, Canute, him and I, about strategy, about AngelList, about stock twits, about how trading worked. A little bit over my pay grade, some of it, but we had a, like, he understood things so much so that he ended up investing. 20 million through stock twits. Um, so, you know, we are, we are uh, connected in that way. Mm -hmm. And I became very good friends with Cena, who ran their growth, who is now out, you know, publicly just as confused as the rest of the people. I know Cena well. He was responsible for doing the deals with Tom Brady and athletes. And I feel like in some way he was looking out for me in hindsight. Um, because I shared so many ideas 
with them for what to do from a strategic standpoint and some of the things they did, like very smartly. But here we are at November 2022, and at least a $10 billion fraud has been perpetrated in the crypto space. Um, so I, 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 I feel sick that I had this person on and, and couldn't pick up on, on the signals. Um, obviously, a lot of money poured into this, his coffers over the last year and a half since I had him on the podcast. And uh, it's, it's a shame. And so, you know, I feel for people because I've been there. I've had uh, fraud happen to me. I've written about it. I've shared it on the, on the blog recently. It is, it is hard to pick up. I will say that, like, as much as, you know, I did my part in promoting uh, Sam as someone who's intelligent and smart and uh, an innovator in the space. So we did our part here at the podcast by uh, having him on. Boy, did he get some people. And he got some of the people that are supposed to be watching out for us. And I take some responsibility there, too. So I hope for people that uh, I feel for people. I know tons of people emailing me. They have a grand, 10 grand, 100 grand, a million at FTX is bad. Um, I definitely did not. You know me. I'm not into crypto as like storing it myself or trading it. I haven't represented. Uh, We don't do ads here. Um, So... You know, there's a lot of lessons here. And our guest today, Lewis Johnson, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about deglobalization, which has been Lewis's theme for the last two years. And he's been dead right because this show is still about how do we position ourselves. And so I look at Lewis as a friend who kind of is my psychologist and someone that if I were to give money to, he has a vision of how uh, the world looks in a deglobalized way. And so we want to walk through that and just talk about life. He lives in Naples. You can go listen. We'll link to his uh, old podcast here. And when you, when you listen to him, you'll realize he's a person worth following because he's a steady hand and understands diversification and how cycles work. So I also want to talk about 5%. You know, we want to talk about the macro 5% interest rates and let's uh, dial up Lewis. Sounds good. Lewis. Hey, Howard, how are you? Thanks for joining me. Have you been defrauded ever? I mean, you're in, I, this is now, this is the closest I've been. I've definitely lost money. I'm an investor in Multicoin who are suffering. So indirectly, I'm taking some hits uh, personally, financially uh, related to FTX. Have you ever been around fraud? Like, have you seen it in, in your life? I don't think I've ever been uh, personally caught up in that, Howard. But like you, know, like you, I've been in the market a lot. And when I saw the whole FTX thing went down, the first thing that I thought of uh, was kind of like a, um, a Bernie Madoff moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you may recall, that was December 2008. Market had been going down for a year. People were pretty freaked out. And, um, and then you had this guy that was part of the establishment that all of a sudden admitted that, I don't know, 10 or 12 years had all been a fraud and it was a massive Ponzi scheme, and, you know, and so it was very. There was a lot of emotion that was charged into that that moment, you know. So, so like you, I'm not really active in in crypto, but I'm watching the the emotion play out, and it made me think of, uh, as you know, Howard. Like I love to learn from history and everything. And there's a great book everybody should read, Charles Kindleberger's Manias, Panics, and Crashes. And there's um, a chapter in that that's called The Emergence of Swindles. Ooh. And yeah, and that's how old that's, is that book? You know, I think it came out in the the 60s or 70s, perhaps. What a great word and so true. 
Yeah, yeah. So basically, the, the emergence of, of Swindle's chapter is about three quarters or 80% through the bear market. And his point was that the swindles have been going on all along, mm-hmm. but in a bull market, nobody nobody cares. When people start having losses, they want their money back. And because parts of, of what happened were, were frauds, when people want their money back, that's the catalyst for the revelation of the fraud. Yeah. Yeah. If I, I, I'll play some inside baseball for you here because I know how the pipes work. Um, very good point. What you're, The second derivative of this is LP is not going to make capital calls to all of these funds or even smell. I don't think the, even the fund managers realize that the pain that's coming in this crypto space because I would say 50% of LPs were already hurting and now they'll just say, listen, sue me. And I don't trust this industry. The whole thing's a fraud. Um, it happened in 08 in Goldman real estate funds, to be honest. So to think it won't happen in crypto. So these are the second order effects. What is amazing, and I know this is terrible, is how lucky we are that this didn't go on for another year because his evil, devious thing was that he understood pipes and the trading enough being trained at Jane Street. So he was, you know, trained in the sausage factory. He had just bought a company called Embed. He had built APIs so that, you know, in an unregulated, you know, they became the king of whatever crypto regulated, unregulated was. They had attached their pipes to people like StockTwits and Alpaca and hundreds of other of firms that were connecting their customers to FTX. So he had come up with an evil genius way to drain people's accounts based on what he was doing in a small way, $10 billion way. This could have been 50 billion, let alone another year. Well, you know, one of the, one of the things you see, Howard, this kind of gets back to a couple of um, points that we made in our, in our prior two discussions, which is really the importance of valuation, which is kind of the silent killer in bear markets. And it's the it's the power behind the throne in, in a bull market, right? Because, um, you know, there's there's two two parts of valuing securities or lease, lease equities, right? One part is whatever the fundamentals are doing. And the other part is what you pay for those fundamentals. And, w- you know, when we talked in 2020 and 2021 and so forth, I mean, the concern that I had was that People were were clearly on a historic basis overpaying wildly for many things, and that's really um, that's an exercise of kind of mass belief or suspension of disbelief. And uh, when that flips, what you can often see is people start to distrust everything, and that's how you get uh, really cheap prices, which are good news for you know value guys like me and people that practice that uh, valuation discipline, in my opinion. Yeah, it is amazing that it got to the point where even Zuckerberg caved to the pressure and what fired 13,000 people. So the markets will make you even even the most arrogant flinch, uh, as they've done this week with both Facebook and now Sam uh, on the run. And so going back to Madoff, it was amazing because Twitter, I was super into Twitter at the time. And I don't know if people remember this, but CNBC had a camera outside his house and we were tweeting about it, and I had an at Bernie Madoff account acting as if, you know, people on, on StockTwits could, could uh, you know, there was an account parodying Bernie Madoff on the run. Um, you know, that couldn't happen today, per se, but it, actually today, Sam is tweeting as himself from the Twitter account. So it's as if, you know, Bernie Madoff, if he had had Twitter in his house, what would he have been, you know, tweeting out? But we watch this unfold on TV. Now it's unfolding globally 24-7, 365 with a massive audience. And 
you know, the book that the, the swindle book you mentioned, I mean, the scale of which that stuff can be done today is staggering. Well, uh, I could tell you I'm I'm looking very much forward if uh, Twitter is to be believed in this, that uh, Michael Lewis, uh, if uh, I saw on Twitter, had been basically Im- embedded with Mr. Friedman uh, for um, last six months or so. So if that's true, then I'm going to pre-order that book because it's going to be interesting. But what? But it's also a little bit creepy because a smart guy like Michael Lewis, when would he have caught on? And what responsibility did he have if he was planted there? I, I'm not anything again. Listen, I'm just saying that is a little weird. No, if we know he's been there six months, there's no way a guy like Michael Lewis could be fooled when a guy like Matt Levine had him on a podcast and kind of tripped him up in 10 minutes. Well, well, you know, I don't know, Howard. I mean, I think, you know, when I sit back and this is kind of getting back on the investing topic kind of in general, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, so much I think of 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 what we try to of what we try to do it's actually it's actually really simple because um you know you're really just trying to avoid doing stupid things you know cuz investing is kind of like a report card you know i mean you you can't go into your parents and say wow look i crushed geometry i got an a and then and then maybe you got like a c or a d and you know chemistry or something i mean you know your in, investing kind of gpa is some total of the good stuff and the bad stuff Mm-hmm. And and so so I think part of kind of risk aware investing is just to say, what are the the things you want to avoid the mistakes in? And you know, and news can be a challenge and sneak up on on everybody, right? But that that's why we really try to have valuation at the core of how we think about you know the world because you know a valuation perspective says you know I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen, but if if something bad happens and I own something at, at X price. Um, you know, how do I, how do I feel about my potential upside and my potential downside, you know? And so, so you're not really approaching the world and saying, I know exactly what's going to happen. You're approaching the world and saying, well, if something scary happens, at least I own this and that won't be so bad. Yeah. And so people now are going to have a, a come to Jesus moment that valuations again, do matter. That won't mean that the next cycle won't happen. The same things won't happen, but here we are. What surprised you so far the most about 2022? Um, well, there's a lot going on, but but frankly, Howard, it's <laughs> that it's that it's well, this is on the wearing my macro hat. It's that rates yeah. are up quite a bit, and you know, uh, parts of the economy seem to be taking that higher rate in much more robust fashion than I would have anticipated six months or a year ago. Um, Correct, in my opinion. Like if you had told me rates would be five percent, my perf- at the beginning of the year, my portfolio would not look the same as it does today. And so you're right. Like we are surviving this thing pretty well relatively. Is that what you is that what you were saying? Um well I guess I guess maybe partly Howard. I mean, I saw a statistic that really kind of blew me away. Uh, and I think it was that there's only been five or six years in the past three hundred years on uh this it's like a GDP weighted index of bond returns where returns have been this have been this bad. Uh, so hmm. it's it's really a rare set of circumstances. So I know the equity market's been mauled pretty good, but frankly, uh, the bigger damage, the more surprising damage, the more historically, you know, uh, anomalous damage has been in the bond market. Yeah, what a year! And so, how do you talk to clients today, November twenty twenty two? Like what? Because you guys have always focused on fundamentals and valuations. So what what is the mood like that you're feeling? Well, you know, as well, you know, Howard. I mean, I was a value guy, kind of on the outside looking in, 
while we had this, you know, real historic bull market in in growth, you know, that started for very fundamental reasons, the iPhone cycle and so forth. And ultimately, I think in retrospect, we can see that it got a little silly, which is what all these cycles do. Mm-hmm. So, um, so if if we're going to be valuation driven, we're probably going to check out early, and I think we did. Um, and so, for like the last six months of the bull market, you end up, you know, kind of like the grumpy neighbor that's yelling at the kids to stay off his lawn, you know, because you're just saying, I, you know, this is this doesn't make sense to me, and you know, you kids are going to hurt yourselves, um, you know. And so that's not a very positive message. But frankly, our message is getting a lot more positive as as valuations are coming down because because again, Howard, I, I certainly don't have a crystal ball in the future, although we do have views. I think we can defend, but but I would much rather begin any kind of uncertain journey with a price that's meaningfully marked down, and so it's de-risked. Love that. Uh, so that's where we find ourselves. And so, frankly, I mean, I'm I'm kind of having fun again, going to work, and it's been a while since I could say that. I can say it's been two years since it's been fun going to work. Meaning, I've made my mistakes. I've killed my time with podcasts, with speculating in crypto, with um, you know burning some of my own capital, but the power of having LP money has forced me to at least sidestep and not have fun at my day job, right? I had to make up a day job for a couple of years because in my world, prices were so far away. It's easy for me to buy Zoom because I can sell it the next day, but it's not easy for me to invest in an overvalued startup that I got to hold on to for 10 years. So, so really my job helped me stay out of the market which forced me to do some stupid things with my personal money. Hmm. But that's easy for me to fix because you take the losses, you move on. The exciting thing for me is that I get to talk to you and understand your point of views going into this. But what excites me is the same as you is I can now talk to founders about the valuations we were at 2016, 2017, because I'm not the old cranky guy. I'm somewhat the reasonable guy. And so you're seeing that as well as what you're saying in the public markets. Yeah, I think so. Because remember, you know, Howard, the way our, our wealth management business works is uh, people, you know, roll into our office, often from other advisors and so forth, you know, and they're, and they're saying, you know, I'm retired or about to retire. You know, the markets are, are terrifying, but like, this is the situation I'm in. I've got to make this money work. You know, can you please help me? And it's very, it's very humbling and it's very, it's very scary. <laughs> you know, it's a big responsibility. And, and so when, when I face the future with more confidence, it's because I'm seeing areas that are down materially in price. Um, and so I feel like no matter what happens from here, I've got much better valuations to begin with. And so the future will be the future, but you know, uh, the my choices are broadening. Like the, the smart things I think I can do, I'm seeing more and more opportunities where a year ago it was really challenging. So let's walk through deglobalization. I wanted to throw it out there and lean back and let you like top down riff through how you see the world under that one word, because, you know, that's what you said you're panicked about, even though you're not panicked about it. What does that word mean to you? You globbed onto that early. Um, so go ahead and, and, and tell us what that means to you. Yeah, well, sure. I, I guess I'd recap uh, briefly two points, uh, Howard, you know, one, of course, is you know my, my theory of bull markets is that the people who are going to be the leaders of the next bull market are going to be the ones who can successfully categorize it in a simple way or in early formation of it, mm-hmm. uh, number one. And number two, it's my opinion that the name of this cycle going forward will kind of be a, 
of deglobalization cycle. And frankly, that that's a reversal of trends that have been in existence since the end of World War II. So this really is a, a reversal of, of very high magnitude if, if our view is correct on it. And so, so what that means to me is that uh, the market volatility makes sense because what you're seeing is a falling off of the old leaders who were wildly successful because they, they met the narrow and unique set of circumstances that allowed them to just blossom into the world-beating stock performers that, that they were. And, and if that world is, is over and dead and there's a new world that's rising, then they, they are not optimized for the world that we exist in. So my view is that they should bleed out and that that uh, loss in market cap will go to the new leaders. And the new leaders are still rising, kind of yet to be identified or, or certainly yet to be capitalized by the market as much as, say, the failing leaders. And that's where you get a bear market. You know, it's just a, it's just a change in leadership. And so if you look at that as a, as a natural cyclical change, it makes it a little easier to deal with, in my opinion. And so what does deglobal, like what does it start looking like? We've had the first phase of war, like what set this off? Well, let's see. Well, of course, um, a, a big part definitely, you know, again, if you if you take a step back, I think, Howard, um, if you look back over over history, the periods of time that have been dominated by open markets, lack of war, peaceful coexistence, and a growth in commerce uh, are when there is kind of an undisputed, in politics, they call this like a hegemonic power or someone who's so well established that nobody... Um, Nobody dares to threaten them. And so this goes all the way actually back to kind of the, the Mongol Empire when they conquered the Chinese like in 1100 or something like that. If you, so if you go back, you look at that, there are these you know, periods like you may have heard that term like Pax you know, Romana, right? Or Pax Britannica. You know, these were periods when you know, the Roman Empire was uh, ascendant and they built all the roads and Roman laws were laws. And as long as the world is fixed like that, then you know, the normal rules can uh, rise to the top, right? Which is that people just want to get along. They want a better world for the kids. You know, they want to make some money. You know, they want to hang out with their families. And uh, that's kind of a genteel, you know, happy world. It's one where people can make money and uh, it's a, in retrospect, it's a favorable time. But, you know, so when I think about deglobalization, what that means is basically like uh, Putin's in, invasion of Russia it was really only the latest of these deglobalization like shocks. But basically, to me, that's a representation that. The, the Russians are no longer happy with their deal, and they're ready to roll the dice to see if they can get a better deal. And I think the Chinese seem to be supporting that. So, so you know, we're in my opinion, we're, we're going from this stable, known world where all the pieces were in place, and it was this globalized world where trade was expanding as a percent of of total GDP, uh, world GDP, and that was uh, driving a lot of global prosperity. And that that's been kind of going in reverse since 2015. And this is only, we're seven years into it now, and now it's kind of obviously broken. Of course, COVID was a big deglobalization shock. So I think what that means, Howard, is, um, you know, so number one, you've got this big change. And then number two, I think you just look at typical capital uh, capital cycles. You know, I mean, as you know, I've got a, a long history of kind of investing in, in cyclical things. And so to me, kind of everything is, is cyclical. And if you have that framework, then you look for changes. And so the area that has clearly had a lot of money thrown at it has been tech and cryptocurrencies. It worked for a long time and now it's really not working. Um, uh, the area in the economy that I can identify that has not been receiving money has been energy, materials, old economy, supply chain, um, the defense Industrial. Sector. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, very much. I mean, uh, I think we mentioned in passing uh, last time we were talking, I mean, think about the energy sector. So two years ago, crude price was negative. And, uh, and now you've got this, this pretty widespread uh, consensus, at least among certain circles, that, you know, crude oil is bad. People that, you know, that are involved in the crude oil chain are bad. You know, they're trying to get um, loans banned to, to these areas and so forth, right? And so, you want to talk about capital starvation. Wow. I mean, um, that's, that's pretty impressive. So, just from the framework of uh, capital starvation, right? Because overinvestment is what drives long-term returns down and underinvestment is what leads to higher returns, right? Because in the end, uh, if industries are providing essential goods and services, they need to be able to survive. They need to be able to replace their assets as they wear out. Uh, so if you look at the the capital cycle that's unfolded, in particular in energy, it's been an amazing uh, crash, some for economic purposes and some for societal purposes. And uh, in my opinion, that's setting up you know a wonderful environment for uh, not only higher prices, but higher spending on creating new supply. I think one of the, the points we raised last time, Howard Wright, is that you know the Fed raising interest rates is not going to call forth new supply. New supply is needed. Correct. New, new supply is the long-term solution. And uh, whether that takes six months or two years, you know, um, we're trying to identify those things that we think are inevitable. And in my opinion, um, one thing that is inevitable is that if we're going to have the kind of growth we've had in the past, we need more investment in creating real things. And that's not been where the money has gone for the last 10 or 15 years. Yes. We talked about that last time. The one thing the Fed can't do by raising rates is create more supply. But in the end, can they in the end? Because eventually people get fired and eventually people have to retrain. But I mean, long, long term, I guess they can. But it was the thing that, that was irking you before, which is they're not, it's the string they can't really pull. Well, uh, well, yeah. And it's hard to blame, you know, the the management teams, for instance, too much for this, Howard. As you know, I've been, I've been around a while and I remember the last commodity down cycle as it was kind of ending in 2003. And I think there's kind of this uh, this typical psychological cycle that takes place, which is basically that um, you know you get the gunslingers who are you know go go growth at the peak of the cycle because aggression has been rewarded historically, and so those those people never saw an asset that they didn't like, they never saw a debt that they didn't like, so they tend to blow money on bad things at the wrong time, and then of course the cycle goes goes pear shaped. Uh, that CEO gets fired and they bring in the bean counters and the bean counters clean everything up and sell assets off and they put their hand on the heart and, and they say, you know, we'll never do such horrible things with shareholder money again. Well, I, you know, we know we did wrong and we're going to straighten up and fly right. And we're, we're kind of at that phase right now. If you think about the energy sector and other sectors as well, you've got, you know, people returning free cash flow to shareholders, the rising dividends, there's just stock buybacks. And so what these people are trying to do is attract shareholders back after just burning them, just like lighting their money on fire in a, in a very painful way. And so so we're just in the bean counter phase, Howard. Like what's going to happen is at some point, the cowboys were going to get hired again because the people who are aggressive at this point are probably going to make a lot of money in terms of the management teams. And then they're going to they're going to fire the bean counters, going to bring in the cowboys, and they're going to overexpand and blow their heads off. And then we'll start all over again. But that's probably <laughs> that's probably you know five five eight years, who knows? But I think it's got legs. Okay, that's a great riff, and that's what I'm that's what I'm here for. So 
And you've, you've talked about this in the last podcast. I just wanted to bring you back on to just level set here. So for context, go back, because we've been talking about this now for a year and a half with you. We kind of only a year in because it was still raging while we started having this discussion. And now, now we're like, oh, you know, and even me, like I knew the trend was over, but I still own some tech stocks. Not, you know, very high cash and T-bill, but I still haven't learned what I'm supposed to do next, right? I, I hear deglobalization. I understand higher interest rates. I know crypto is, is dangerous. I know tech is behind, you know, they're slow to have reacted to getting their, you know, their, their cash flow or, or focusing on what Wall Street really has been telling them. And I'll tell you what, I had a conversation with like a major CEO who's a friend of mine of a, of a public software company. And I said, dude, I think... And this is when their stock is down another 50% since then. And it's a multi-billion dollar company. I said, dude, I think you got to like, let some people go. And the CEO told me, you know, fuck Wall Street. And this is a really smart person. Yeah. Yeah. And when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, we had 10 years of, of these young guys who had only seen a bull market, even if they had created yeah. billion dollar companies. That's right. You can't say fuck Wall Street. You can say fuck that guy. But Wall Street kind of votes and you know those are dangerous attitudes you sometimes have to listen uh you have to learn how to listen and listen properly you can't listen to everybody Mm -hmm. but wall street was telling people to get their your finances in order for a while Mm -hmm. and even zuckerberg wasn't listening until very recently so in the world where we're getting religion what is it the same stuff materials energy financials that that the value sectors that people need to start learning and understanding? Yeah, I think if you want to characterize it, you know, broadly, Howard, I think a lot of people would consider the value sectors, uh, you know, materials, financials, um, industrials, energy, uh, you know, maybe maybe a few others. And of course, the growth sectors, you know, were the the prior leadership, right? Consumer discretionary and especially tech, you know, the, um, the big um, search engine names, you know, those kind of guys. But um, and frankly, that's kind of what you're seeing, right? Is you're seeing the the you know led by energy, but you know you're seeing the broadening strength out there, and so that that kind of makes sense to me. Another thing too, Howard, just think about it mathematically. We talked about this kind of big surge in in interest rates. Um, I mean, it's one of the key differences in let's say a value stock and a growth stock or whatever is a lot of these growth stocks that have been pounded so much. You could call them kind of long duration assets, right? Because um, the idea was that they were going to blitz scale and and achieve profitability sometime in the far future, and then they would be you know monopolies or whatever. But because it was a high, say, PE company, if there was an, an earnings at all, a small change in interest rates is going to have an enormous impact on, say, the discounted you know cash flow analysis of of what the same Correct. the same cash flows are actually worth. Now, take I mean, I'm looking at I got. Steel stocks that have P's at two, right? You know, so the market is clearly skeptical of the sustainability of that. But with the with the a P of two, that's you know fifty percent um, essential you know return, right, uh, per year in terms of the earnings you get for owning that security. So that a security like that is clearly going to be far less sensitive to higher rates, and that's probably a big part of what's taking place, right? It's just uh, duration driven change. But uh, if if my expectation for you know a multi year bull market in, in commodities is appropriate, then we'll start to see the earnings come through, and you're starting to see this in areas like energy, for instance. Yeah, 
Well, I I love the way you put that. And the other thing about yeah, that blitz scaling thing, really smart people saying cute things. Blitz scaling, I don't know if it ever really worked. It definitely worked if you timed around the iPhone and and Facebook marketing. But those those things, high interest rates and the and the shutting down of Facebook by Apple have taken away the trick of blitz scaling plus what it costs to hire an engineer and then uh, maintain an engineer and keep an engineer somewhat happy. Um, you know, this tech can't work in a 5% interest rate world, um, especially in one that's deglobalizing where your product's not going to even be yep. used in China yep. or Russia or half the world anymore. Well, and the other thing too, I remember one of the things that we've talked about is, um, I mean, my, my experience is there's been at least, what, two big leadership changes. Um, there was the... Tech in the late 90s, which crashed, it fell 85%, and then commodities led for eight to 10 years, and then they crashed 85%, and then tech led for 10 or 15 years, and now tech is crashing. Uh, so I don't know, why won't that fall 85%? You know, I mean, it, that's, been my ex, that's been my experience the last last couple of cycles. And, that, and that's why I think the trickiest thing in this, in this whole business is these leadership changes, because they're very infrequent. And if you hop hmm. off a leadership um, too early, because that's really their world-beating, you know, sectors, then you leave money on the table. And frankly, if you overstay, you're welcome. The the pain, as people can see in some of these mega cap tech stocks, is just un unbelievable. 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 I've witnessed it a couple ways. Luckily, you know, with reduced positions. But I guess the thing that makes it a little bit different this time is indexing and market cap, because a lot of stocks are down 80 to 90%, but the index, the NASDAQ index only down 30%. So is what really makes this difficult is the underlying NASDAQ is much worse than it seems, which is confusing to a guy like me because I'm seeing already 80, 90% carnage. So it's hard for me to understand what's next. Well, I'm I'm just trying to to focus, you know, Howard on this, this, this leadership, you know, framework, right? Because, because remember that it's, I mean, owning leadership for the course of a cycle can be a life-changing endeavor for people to do it appropriately. And Correct. so that's rare and powerful and it's very, very difficult. Uh, and so not many people will, will do that well and you can focus on it and still get it wrong. However, yep. um, what I'm trying to do is I am a bit like Cortez and you know burn the ships. Like I'm I'm really not looking at the old cycle stuff anymore. Um, you know, in our kind of more uh, concentrated strategies in particular. I mean, I'm just really focused on what is, you know, what is that next set of, of leadership and it and and I'm trying to drive that through that deglobalization framework and say, um, as well as these capital cycle framework and say, okay, well, um, what are the things that I um, that I can buy where if I'm, even if I'm wrong, I shouldn't, you know, lose any money or so, certainly shouldn't lose much money if I've done my, my work appropriately. And, um, and can I build a, a smart portfolio like that, that creates, you know, optionality. That was something I remember being very valuable, Howard, in the last commodity cycle in which I participated was, you know, you start off with the thesis that, you know, you know, something was underinvested in, it needed higher prices. It would be a good thing to own the equity ahead of that. And then, and your and what I found is your uh, your thesis would be validated by the market, and then there may be two or three or four aspects that you literally never anticipated, and mm -hmm. they and they come through, and that's that's how you make like an awful lot of money 
in in these things. And and frankly, when you begin that journey, like you don't you don't know those things are going to happen. Just like I. I don't know. I mean, how many people could have appropriately anticipated in 2007 how much money Apple would would make them? You know, I mean, it was right. it was incredible what happened. And so they kind of went from strength to strength. This is why it's so challenging, you know, to to find those those leaders because, you know, it's it's really a small subset of what's going on in the world. And so I can tell you one of the things that I think about in our internal discussions clearly is, you know, we're we're very cautious about let's say the market. But we're excited about you know the opportunities that, that we're seeing because you know we're we're trying to have a focused enough um, you know view on investments where we're not really that worried about what takes place in you know the market. We're focused on those new leaders, and that's why you know it's exciting because frankly, for the last year or so, I was just a little bit like a boxer and I was trying to take my punch as well. You know, I had my had my hands up trying to protect my face, uh, you know, protect my body, and. Um, you know, and we were very defensive, and even frankly, we're dialing up the we're dialing up the risk in the areas that we think are could be the new leaders, and so that's why I'm having fun again. So, for someone who's not high net worth yet, but wants to focus on this, let's say there's a six to ten year cycle that takes place. Are there a few ETFs that allow people to at least participate in what? Um, this value slash material cycle looked like? Are there two that people could watch on their screen to just kind of see this unfold? Well, I'm, I'm sure there are, Howard. I mean, as you know, we we tend to invest in the underlying securities and our own investment strategies. Yes. But, but I think um, the sectors that have been starved of capital are the ones to pay the most attention to. And that's going to be uh, the energy sector, even here, in my opinion. Um, frankly, oil services, uh should be the biggest recipient of the new cash flows needed to grow supply once people reach the conclusion that that's a smart thing. Uh, that's okay. another area. You know, frankly, um, a lot of the the metals uh, tend to do well because when you when you have these commodity cycles, Howard, one of the things that you see is, you know, all the commodities tend to participate in one way or another. So, frankly, agriculture uh, is an area that we think should participate. You know, as well. Those are some of your you know, big three or big four. And then, and then perhaps finally, um, there are a number of, of companies that specialize in, you know, creating new capacity in these sectors, kind of like oil services for things like their companies, for instance, that they make new chemical factories or they, they help people build new mines, you know, they're, they're, but it's, it's a very different set, you know, it's a very different set of securities, but, but the dynamics are always the same. Howard, really, it starts off, uh, due to a capital starvation cycle with, conservative management and street that um, can't embrace the scope of the change yet. And then what happens is, uh, you know, in your typical typical cycle, right, is um, a series of fortunate events will, will take place that will surprise people. And then as it starts to blossom, you know, people get crazier and crazier and do super things. So frankly, I was having this conversation with our director of research, Sev Abraham, and we were both you know, we were both very confident that probably two years before the end of this thing, we'll we'll bail out on it early. <laughs> you know, and so I, that's I, the that's unfortunately the way it goes. You no, can't that is, you leave a party while it's in full gear yeah, is the hardest yeah. part, but it's the most important part. So, so th- that's very helpful. Those sectors, so people can do the work there. Um, what about interest rates? Does anything scare you there about what the Fed's doing or or, or the results so far? 
Well, you know, that, that has been a, a surprise, Howard, because I, I frankly uh, did not anticipate that they would be raising rates this, this quickly and it would do so little damage ostensibly, at least to the real economy. It's done damage to, say, tech, for instance. But, um, you know, but again, Howard, I think one of the things that I've, I've come to believe is that um, once a cycle, the long mechanism of it begins to, those gears begin to grind, you start to change that, you know, the, the fundamentals will arise to support it. So perhaps could that mean high nominal rates, but low real rates on an inflation adjusted basis? That That's one outcome or weaker dollar, perhaps. Could that be a means to facilitate this? You know, I mean, um, but, but remember, Howard, the, the imperative that we're, that we believe in is that if you have had this underinvestment cycle, uh, what's important for the market, um, because the market does award people that provide solutions, right, is is like, like crude oil. Like if um, if we are going to consume crude oil, then we're going to have to – companies are going to have to make enough money to replace that production growth, which means they're going to have to be you know drilling more, which which is good for you know the oil service companies and people that make um, you know oil tubes and this kind of stuff, right? So. Like that set of fundamentals, it's our expectation. Like it's just going to arise. There's only so much you can anticipate at this point. And I guess my framework has been that the the fundamentals will will kind of find a way to uh, take the cycle that's underway and and validate it and supercharge it. Beautiful. And and with respect to the recent hurricane, where how was Naples affected? How did you guys dodge that bullet? Well, yeah. Th- thanks for asking. I tell you, it was a it was a huge blow for uh, you know for Naples. Um, you know, it was pretty much almost a direct hit. You know, it was a, I guess a Category Four or almost five for, for a little bit there. So there's a very damaging storm surge. A lot of people lost their homes, um, and particularly even a little bit north of us. So it was it was really damaging. But I can tell you, I've I've really been impressed with. How quickly uh, the authorities have organized themselves, how quickly things are cleaning up, how fast things are coming back. So it was a, it was a terrible blow, but there was an amazing response as well. The beach where I stay, like the hotel that I stay, were they affected? Yeah, yeah, they probably had ten feet of water through. Oh. The, yeah, through your hotel. Uh, and I remember, I I love that place. I sit right on the beach in my room. Yeah. So the, you're saying that room was probably underwater. Yeah, and of course that that's a real meaningful blow for real people here because the tourism business is very important, and there are a lot of people who don't have jobs anymore because it's going to take a you know a year or six months, however long, to get those things open. But um, you know, so it's it's part of the struggle of of living down here, you know, in Naples. I mean, um, but but it's got wonderful people and they're working hard. And and you know, I had this conversation. A lot of friends were kind enough to call and ask, and that was the two things I told them: it was a terrible blow, and it's going to come back fast. Because that's been my experience is the uh, it's it's a well run area and people take rebuilding seriously so it's going to happen. Yeah, I love Florida. I love Naples. I love rediscovering with you and fishing. So I really appreciate your time. I mean, listen, it's, it's for me. You've been a steady Eddie. You haven't been like pounding the table. You, people are dumb for doing this. Um, you've just been kind of being that steady hand, explaining to people how cycles work. And, you know, it is uh, always a pleasure to hear uh, how you think about things. Um, and uh, I appreciate your time, my man. Say hi to the team. And hopefully I'll see you out in Naples soon. No, look, I appreciate being here and the opportunity to chat with you, Howard. Thanks, Lewis. Bye, guys. All right, buddy. See ya. Thank you. Bye. 
K-Nut. Hey. Yeah, that was Lewis Johnson, who uh, is highly excitable, but was very calm here. We've been, he and I have been friends fishing and, and talking about markets for a long time. And I knew his day would come. So I started picking his brain here, what, two years ago. Uh, I just started feeling weird. I wish I understood more. I wish I had listened more, but it's hard when you don't understand. I remember when oil went negative, I was like, you have to buy oil, but I didn't hold it. And now we're at $90. And what he's saying is this cycle is early because it's underinvested and under uh, serviced. Yeah. So uh, we'll check back in three, six months with Lewis, see where his head's at in this cycle. But you are listening to Panic with Friends. Knut and I sit down with people like Lewis, traders, investors, money managers, uh, entrepreneurs, some of them bad. Uh, as we find out, uh, as we found out uh, recently with FTX, and uh, try and get people a little bit ahead of the market. Um, it's quite humbling sometimes when we're wrong. Uh, you can go to Spotify, Apple, Google, search my name, uh, click subscribe, and you will get a podcast from Knut and I every week. Uh, thanks, Knut. We'll see everybody next week. Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.